When is the last time that you cried? Uh, like probably a month and a half ago, my father had to have surgery, sort of extreme surgery on an artery. We didn't know if it was going to work or not. So there was a uncertainty about whether or not he would leave the room. So, yeah. Did you, and when was the last time you cried in front of somebody else? Was that then or? Uh, probably around, uh, maybe, actually maybe like two weeks prior to that when I learned that it was going to have to occur. Yeah. When's the last time that you cried? Uh, probably in the fall. Yeah. And was and was the last time you cried in front of somebody else? Uh, it's like seven. <laughs> no, uh, that's a, that's a great question. I don't have a great answer for you. It's been some time. Yeah. I'm Lily Sloan, and this is A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, a podcast that brings therapy to you. So, when was the last time you cried? Or what about the last time you cried in front of somebody else? Did it feel good? Was it embarrassing? And what do you think you've learned from your culture, from family and friends about crying? I mean, I think most of us have some pretty mixed experiences with crying, whether it's our own tears or seeing them in someone else. And a lot of this is impacted by gender norms and expectations. So for this special episode, I'm bringing back an old co-host and producer of the podcast Manish, Jesse Rhodes, to take a look at crying. But more specifically, public tears shed by politicians and what this has meant for them politically. In his show, Manish, he is all about unpacking masculinity and gender, in part because... Well, Jesse really wanted to figure this stuff out for himself. A lot of the episodes have been focused on on ways in which men can be harmed by gender because I kind of think that that's maybe a good opening for getting men involved and interested in essentially feminism. And he says that eventually he plans to focus on the harm caused to others by certain expressions of masculinity in our culture. I met with Jesse in a beer garden in Oakland to talk about this piece. And he said he came across the story of 1972 Democratic presidential candidate Edmund Muskie in a half page near the end of a book called Manhood in America by Michael Kimmel. And Jesse said he was instantly fascinated by this man's tragic political downfall. All because he cried. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, I want to know more about how Jesse feels about crying. Yeah, I've always had trouble crying, especially, like, in front of other people, even someone I trust, like, a partner. Like, I usually end up, even now, crying by myself. If I cry, like, I don't like other people to see it. And that's something that I can recognize as not healthy, and it's it's something I wish I were better at, but it's, like, also, there's, like, this internal barrier there. What, is it something that you're afraid of happening or not happening if you cry in front of another person? Um, yes, I'm definitely afraid of of it of what it would mean of probably looking weak. Even though I know, like with my girlfriend, that she would not judge me. Um, uh, <laughs> I just realized I'm talking about something very intimate in front of random strangers. Um, <laughs> very ma- masculine dudes right by us playing cornhole right now. 
And um, by the way, those are the guys that you heard at the very beginning talking about when they last cried. And Jesse's getting a little microphone shy. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to talk about crying, which should tell you, but I'm afraid of also just crying. I mean, I grew up watching TV and, you know, being exposed to, to mainstream culture, which has all sorts of subtle and not so subtle messages about how men should ex express their, like, sadness or insecurities. I went into therapy, like, six years ago or so, and part of it was for depression and, and feeling really um, sad, but I was not, not crying. In, in, a, in, a, in a weird way, I think I was hoping to cry more when I went into therapy, and, and I actually didn't that much. I, I've, I think I've cried once in therapy. There is that question of like, am I doing this wrong? Or like, why can't I do this? Like, and that actually did, that led me, I wrote a really bad sci-fi short story about um, a, a future where, where there are in induced catharsis crying episodes where doctors are like injecting hormones and chemicals into people to induce crying to relieve stress and I think that was my way of imagining a way to get it medically that I couldn't achieve through what I had been trying. All right so obviously Netflix has to turn this story into a show but until Jesse's sci-fi dreams come true here he is with the musky rule. This man doesn't walk he crawls. <laughs> It's a cautionary tale. If you're in politics, you've probably heard it. He's talking about my wife. But it's fortunate for him he's not on this platform beside me. A good woman. The Muskie rule. Don't cry in front of the press or you'll end up like Edmund Muskie, whose 1972 presidential bid imploded when he choked up in public. Let me talk. In today's show, which is the first installment in a series on men and crying, we will revisit the incident that led to the Muskie rule. I'm Jesse Rhodes, and this is Manish. What was it like on that uh, famous bus trip when you were heading into the North Country in a snowstorm? Well, I think you're probably uh, talking about uh, the man that wasn't so nice. That's Jane Muskie being interviewed by Don Nickel in 2002. He's asking her about a nine-hour bus ride she took in the middle of a snowstorm with a traveling press corps. And that bus ride in the snowstorm is important because it sets in motion a chain of events that will end with Jane's husband, Ed Muskie, crying in front of the press at the door of the man that wasn't so nice. I was, ultimately he was involved, but on that uh, bus trip, uh, it was very stormy and a very difficult bus ride. Mm. And according to Mary Hoyt, you were trying to help the press people, most of whom were women, right. uh, get through it. 
But for any of this to make sense, we need to back up. Because to understand these chain of events, it helps to know something about Ed and Jane Muskie. Certainly not rich. He had, uh, I, I think, five brothers and sisters. You know, so they they weren't well off, but they they got by okay during the depression. That's Jim Witherell, who wrote a biography about Edmund Muskie. His father was a tailor in in downtown Rumford, and his clientele included uh, all the the bankers and the big shots at the paper mill, the, the president, all the executives there. Both Jane and Ed were working class kids. Ed's parents emigrated from Poland. Jane had a single mom who worked as a cook. Ed, who was a shy, brainy kid, graduated with honors, got a scholarship to Bates College, then a scholarship to Cornell Law School. And when he returned to Maine, after school and the war, he was no longer just the shy Taylor's son. He was the lawyer. And two ladies in town thought they liked to fix up Jane, who was just graduating from high school at the time, with Ed. He he certainly would not have married anyone who couldn't vote. So I think he was very um, worried that people would think that he was robbing the cradle. So anyway, my brother Howard said uh, to Ed one time, he didn't tell me this for for a couple of years, but uh, he kept saying, you're too old for my little sister, and... Uh, that sort of thing. To be clear, because this does come into play later, Ed was about 13 years older than Jane, which raised a lot of eyebrows. But Ed did win over Jane and her family, especially Jane's mom. But uh, anyway, my mother loved him because he was tall and he could change light bulbs and he always was willing to do anything around the house. They got married three years later. Ed started working as a lobbyist in the Maine legislature. He was known for his passionate outbursts. People said he had a temper, but he was also well-liked. He built a lot of connections across the state, became a state representative, and when he won the governor race of 1954, the national newspapers took note of him as the young Democrat who charmed a Republican state. Jane supported his ambitions, but she mostly stayed at home and took care of the kids, seeing Ed whenever he'd come home from campaigning. And there were a lot of campaigns. Besides the two state representative campaigns and the governor race, there were the four Senate races, the vice presidential race, and then in 1972, the presidential bid. And this is when Jane finds herself on a bus in the middle of a blizzard with a group of reporters. It's the middle of December, New Hampshire, and she's campaigning as the potential first lady. It's her first trip. There are banks of snow building up on the side of the road, and she notices some of the reporters getting nervous. To cheer them up, she passes around drinks and starts cracking jokes. This type of hobnobbing between reporters and candidates was not unusual for the time, so Jane let her guard down. So many of the people on the bus were scared to death to be riding out in the banks of snow, and others were kept wanting to get off so they could to get their their articles into their press people. And I I don't know. We just started to sing, and we tried. Mary and I tried to cheer them up, and uh, that didn't work, obviously. 
that, obviously, is referring to what happened next. Candy Stroud, a reporter for Women's Wear Daily, filed her story, catching the bus with Jane Muskie. Put your notebooks away, girls. Mama's gonna sing tonight. With that, Jane Gray Muskie lit another filter-tip cigarette and invited the members of her traveling press corps for cheese and drinks in her room. The article described Jane as colorful and outspoken. Jane admits to being a feminist in one quote. But there was one paragraph in particular that people remember. Maybe because of the boozing or smoking, but probably mostly because of the dirty jokes. She thinks nothing of telling you she couldn't get her black cotton boots over her elastic stockings. That she didn't want to wear a particular dress because someone else had the GD thing on. Or shouting, let's tell dirty jokes, or pass me my purse, I haven't had my morning cigarette yet. And there are other gems too, like the dreaded little dreams that come from mixing booze with wine. Or the fact that she calls Ed, who remember is 13 years older than her, Big Daddy. And it's these details in the article that kicks everything into gear. Because what happens next is this. The Manchester Union Leader, which at the time is one of the biggest newspapers in New Hampshire, runs a letter that claims Ed used the word Canuck, which was a derogatory word for French Canadians, on the campaign trail. And a day later, the paper runs an excerpt of the bus story with the headline, Big Daddy's Jane. It focuses on the drinking and the dirty jokes. And because it's a week before the primary, Ed acts. Again, here's Don Nickel interviewing Jane Muskie. My question to you is, uh, before Ed uh, delivered that public rebuke to Loeb, did he discuss with you uh, at any length his uh, feelings about the attack on you and, and uh, how he proposed to deal with it? Uh, no, he didn't really discuss it with me. I probably would have said, don't, don't do it. it. It'll come home to haunt you. And, uh, and I can take it. But uh, I didn't say that. He's been campaigning in other states. He's tired. And he's enraged at this depiction of Jane as a lush. The campaign has taken a hit in the polls, whether because of the Canuck allegation or the Jane article is unclear. So he flies back to Maine. He had to explain himself when we got home to Maine to a lot of audiences, though. And I felt really badly that uh, he had to go through that. But he kept assuring me that uh, uh, everything would be okay. He tells his staff to park a flatbed truck in front of the union leader and to call the press. He'll address his remarks to the paper's publisher, William Loeb, in front of his building. It's 9.30, Saturday morning. There's a crowd, and the snow is really coming down. But it's just warm enough to melt. In fact, reporters are worried about their notebooks getting wet. And then Ed steps up to the mic and speaks. Well, I think I might... uh... Then began. First of all, if I might he introduces the people standing on the truck with him, colleagues and family members. With that done, he gets down to business. By attacking me, by attacking my wife, he has proved himself to be a gutless coward.
I've chosen this spot in front of his building to give him an opportunity, if he has the guts, to come down here and answer anything I have to say. I've also chosen this spot in front of his building because I can't get this story told through his columns. Ed talks about the Canuck letter for a while. He talks about how people used to call him a Polak, how he hates derogatory language and would never use it. He sounds indignant, but in that John Wayne cool kind of way. He's calm. But then, you know, I've been in politics all my life. I'm no child. I know that these sorts of things happen. I've got to be prepared to take them. And then about 15 minutes into the speech, things take a turn for the personal. What really got me was this editorial attacking my wife, Big Daddy's Jane. And this man doesn't walk, he crawls. <laughs> talking about my wife. Maybe I said all I should on that point. But it's fortunate for him he's not on this platform beside me. Good woman. Ed's face crumples. Snow is falling on his forehead, melting and trickling down his cheeks. Or are they tears? He wipes his nose and his eyes. Let me talk. What happens next is almost as striking as the lengthy pause. The audience quiets down, and Ed, perhaps thinking better of it, just drops the thread, turning instead to a man next to him. I'd like to introduce you to Art Barker, if I may. When Ed walks off the stage, he tells his campaign manager that he didn't mean to get so emotional. He let his temper get the better of him. His campaign manager, though, isn't worried. It humanizes him. But when the Washington Post comes out later that day, and they see how the event is characterized, they become worried. With tears streaming down his face and his voice choked with emotion, Senator Edmund S. Muskie stood in the snow outside the Manchester Union leader this morning. In defending his wife, Muskie broke down three times in as many minutes, uttering a few words and then standing silent in the near blizzard, rubbing at his face, his shoulders heaving. Across the country, newspapers reported that Muskie had broken down in tears. He couldn't control himself at a press conference. He cried. And we could easily get lost in the conspiracy of Edmund Muskie's tears. Reporters who were closest to the flatbed truck 
swear to this day that snow was melting off his forehead the whole time. There were no tears. An AP reporter later said that editors added the crying details to his version once they got word of the Washington Post's angle. Or we could disappear into the conspiracy of the Canuck letter, which was later discovered to have been fabricated by a Nixon aide. But the important thing is not whether tears were mixed in with melting snow. The important thing is what happened next. William Loeb, the newspaper publisher, was quoted as saying that Muskie was near hysterical and not the man to have his finger on the nuclear button. Even McGovern, the more liberal candidate, later used it against him. And bumper stickers began to appear in Florida, which is where the next primary was, that said, vote for Muskie or he'll cry. Again, here's Jim Witherell. I think the next primary, I, I believe, was Florida. I think he won the next couple of primaries, but not by as much uh, as he should have or he, or he hoped to, or it, it you know, started to look like he wasn't a, a, as strong a candidate at that point um, because of the, the dirty tricks and, and the, the, um, the New Hampshire incident. And so Edmund Muskie's bid for president collapsed. Not, it's important to note, just because he appeared to cry. He was a moderate liberal in a year when many people were passionately opposed to Vietnam and Nixon. Ironically, Muskie, known for his temper, wasn't fiery enough for the electorate. In addition, he took New Hampshire for granted and campaigned fewer days there than McGovern did. The narrative quickly became, Muskie barely wins a state that should have been a shoe-in. But those tears, or melting snow, or whatever they were, became a big part of the story, too. That the senator was unbalanced, soft, shaky. He was not only the wrong man for the job, he wasn't even a man. All that was left for Ed to do was slip back to his post in the Senate. He never ran for president again. Okay, so now we know a bit more about Muskie's fate, but is this Muskie rule really a rule, or is there more going on here? I discovered that the usual lesson, I guess, that that people draw from that incident is more complicated. First of all, things have changed since that happened, and second of all, like there are ways in which men or people in general can cry publicly, and there are ways in which it can be very, like, dangerous to do that. Well, here's Jesse with part two, Musky Today. The Muskie rule says that crying on the campaign trail is political suicide. But in recent years, there have been some pretty big boys who have cried. 
Barack Obama cried about gun violence. Every time I think about those kids, it gets me mad. Mitt Romney teared up about the Mormon church ending its ban on African-American priests. And I pulled over and literally wept. Even to this day, it's emotional. Joe Biden about his son. If a child you're not sure is going is to make it. Mitch McConnell about a colleague who is retiring. That when Judd walks out of this chamber, <clears throat> when he walks out of this chamber for the last time. George H.W. Bush about his son. <laughs> John Boehner about children. You have a shot at the American dream. My God. And Newt Gingrich, who tears up. Every time we sing Christmas carols. Um, yeah, I'm starting to. Uh, my, uh, excuse me. It makes you wonder is the musky rule that there's no crying in politics finally dead? In today's show, we're going to find out how much things have actually changed. If musky got into a time machine, and travel to present day, what would happen? You're listening to Manish. This is Jesse Rhodes. Muskie today. To find out how Muskie would fare in today's world, I turn to someone who not only has studied the Muskie moment, but who has closely monitored the tears of contemporary politicians. Uh, my name is Ryan Neville Shepard. Uh, I am an assistant professor of communication studies at the University of Arkansas. I specialize in uh, political rhetoric. Ryan graduated from Bates College, whose most famous graduate is Ed Muskie. So in the four years of being there as a politics fan, you know, you always wonder what could have been. Fast forward to 2008, and Ryan is in grad school. The 2008 primaries are in full swing, and he's noticing something. There are all these incidents of crying. Uh, Mitt Romney cried twice during the 2008 campaign. Uh, Barack Obama cried a, day be- a couple days before the election when his grandmother had died. Two involving Hillary Clinton. Uh, Joe Biden. Five incidents in the 2008 campaign where Biden cries. And what Ryan notices is this. Out of all the campaign tears falling people are only really talking about one. And so there are these uh, nine other incidents, right, or eight other incidents involving guys, and and, uh, the media really only wants to talk about one that's barely a display of any kind of emotion. Um, Hillary Clinton in this New Hampshire coffee shop. Okay. I know we just came through an intense election that is still probably on a lot of our minds. And maybe the last thing you want to hear is more Trump or in this case, Clinton. But for just a moment, take yourself back to January 7th, 2008. Because this becomes a key moment in political tears. Several new polls show Barack Obama far in the lead, and on the Republican side, John McCain. First, though, a rare show of emotion on the campaign trail from Senator Hillary Clinton. It happened earlier today. The Democrat became a little bit choked up during a roundtable discussion that she held with undecided voters. What ends up happening a couple of days before the New Hampshire primary is there's a debate at St. Anselm College in Manchester. And she's asked how she responds to voters who might like her politics but find her so incredibly unlikable. 
And so she sort of jokes and says, I don't think I'm that bad. And Barack Obama interrupts her briefly and he goes, You're likable oh, enough. Thank Hillary, you so no much. <laughs> uh, and then there's this tag teaming that takes place at the debate where John Edwards goes up against her as well. I want her to know, I think you look terrific tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and so things are not going her way. And so uh, I think it's right after that that she's at a coffee shop. Um, and she's in a woman's group. There is a camera there. And somebody just asks a really innocent question. They say, the campaign is rough, um, but you're always up there and you always seem so composed and you always seem so cheerful. How do you do it? And uh, she brings it down a notch. She says, I got to admit, it's not really easy. It's not easy. It's not easy. Um, and, and I couldn't do it if I just didn't, you know, passionately believe it was the right thing to do. Uh, and she pauses for a moment. A tear sort of forms in the corner of her eye, although it's sort of hard to tell when you watch the media clip. But she clearly chokes up for a second. And she just says, And some people think elections are a game. They think it's like who's up or who's down. It's about our country. It's about our kids' futures. And it's really about all of us together. You know, some of us put ourselves out there and do this against some pretty difficult odds. And we do it, each one of us, because we care about our country. The narrative takes off, right? The narrative takes off as this is being a sort of Hillary's crying moment, her musky moment. The most famous example of somebody crying on the campaign trail Muskie. was Muskie. And Patrick and Oder. everybody felt that after Muskie cried that he was not fit to be president. And I believe that there could well come a time when there is such a serious threat to the United States that she uh, breaks down. Similarly, John Edwards said, presidential campaigns are tough, but being president of the United States is also very tough business. So the criticism was mounting. Was Hillary Clinton not tough enough to be president? So you have a lot of guys ganging up on her for a moment of, I think a lot of people indicated as honesty, emotional honesty, um, but it definitely got crafted as a moment of weakness. Of course, this is nothing if not sexist. The handful of male candidates who cried get a sprinkling of bad press. Hillary Clinton cries, and the scrutiny is palpable. But then something happens that catches Ryan's attention. Clinton wins the New Hampshire primary. And Ryan starts to wonder, what's going on? How did Muskie's tears hurt and Clinton's tears help? What I tried to do was uh, analyze a lot of the literature that we have in psychology and sociology and political science, anywhere where people are talking about crying to understand how perceptions of crying get formed. Ryan comes across all these factors that affect our perceptions of crying. Whether or not you normally cry or you show your emotional side, sexuality, one's outsider status, race, whether or not they display a type of authenticity, class, frequency, age, gender, but it's especially bad for women, the degree of... All of which in the political world can lead to bad press. But of course, Muskie and Clinton both received bad press after their incidents. So, Ryan thought, there must be something else. And in looking back at the footage of Hillary Clinton, Ryan discovered what that something was. And so on January 6th, after her crying incident, uh, she visited CNN's John Roberts and basically said, you know, I have emotions, I'm a human being. Uh, people doubt that, but it's true, I'm human. 
she uh, went on Access Hollywood and she started working uh, pretty much all the talk shows that she could. Um, and she said blatantly that there was a double standard uh, for women crying in office. She said, quote, do you get too emotional that undercuts you? A man can cry, but a woman, it's a different dynamic. This, Ryan says, has a name and it's called reframing. Politicians are really good at repairing their images after disaster, at identifying what could be a weakness and then trying to reframe it for the media. So it's reframing, uh, and, and that's the power of, of capturing a, a new media narrative. And this is really important because emotions lend themselves to ambiguity. A lot of us leave it to other people to figure out our tears. Uh, so Aristotle called this the anthamine. When I'm getting angry, I don't say... I am getting angry because if I'm crying, I don't look at somebody and say, I am crying because. And so it's really up to the audience to determine uh, uh, what the context is, what the intentions might be. But with reframing, you don't do this. You tell them what your tears mean. I am crying because. Basically, tell a story. Not just any story but one that explains your behavior and raises doubts about your political opponents. And so I think uh, her response was trying to unite probably a lot of the people who already supported her, and sort of weaken uh, the criticism of people who, who didn't like her. And as Ryan said, Clinton did interviews explaining the incident. She alluded to the double standard and placed her tears in the context of this struggle. I mean, sometimes I'm, you know, angry, sometimes I'm outraged, sometimes I'm frustrated, sometimes I'm just even, you know, determined more to try to do what I need to do. But every time it's a rush of emotion. And yet I'm well aware of the fact that I'm held to a different standard, as most women still are. And the way Clinton responds fits Ryan's model. She raised doubts about her opponents who were applying a double standard. And she explained her reaction as being about all women, not just her. In fact, after speaking with Ryan, I went back to the original coffee shop tape, and I noticed something. That reframing begins much sooner than follow-up interviews. It begins almost immediately after the tears. It's not easy. It's not easy. She breaks down in responding to a personal question. She tears up, and her voice shakes as she talks about how difficult it's been for her. And then, without skipping a beat, almost as an afterthought, she pivots. It's about our country. It's about our kids' futures. And it's really about all of us. But I think for Clinton, she made her, her moment of what the media was calling a personal weakness. It was a political moment. Uh, I'm upset because I'm upset for America. I'm not upset for myself. I'm not wallowing in self-pity. And so she succeeded in part because she was uh, masterful in recrafting the narrative. And anybody who saw the debate that preceded her tears could very easily identify with her. So to recap, you have two big takeaways from this incident. The triggers and the reframe. Politicians like Hillary Clinton really step into dangerous territory by shedding tears. But they pivot almost immediately and manage to use the incident to their advantage. And this brings us to the question of the day. What would happen to Ed Muskie today? If Muskie were alive today and did everything the, the same, we put him in a time machine, what would happen? Would the same factors be ticked off? Well, well I think for Muskie, he makes it personal. 
it is sort of like this masculine show of like, we're parked here and I dare him to show his face. And so everything that he's indicating is that somebody can bait him uh, by being insulting and then he sort of has a breakdown. But it's not all over. Remember that breakdown can still be reframed. And the sooner he acts, the better chance he has of reframing his tears. And this is where a real difference emerges between Muskie and Clinton. Unlike Clinton, who pivots to a reframe, Muskie comes to a clumsy standstill. Again, if we go back to the tape, we hear Muskie choke up. A good woman. Silence, applause, and then mid-sentence, instead of reframing, he changes topics as if nothing ever happened. I'd like to introduce you to Art Barker, if I may. And just for a comparison, here's Clinton immediately after her tears. It's about our country. It's about our kids' futures. And it's really about all of us. The difference is striking. Clinton explains her tears. Muskie changes the subject. He doesn't really address the tears or try to redefine them in a way that he says, what I'm upset about is that this campaign's getting nasty. And we have a number of editors, uh, especially the Manchester Union leader, uh, uh, who is, is sort of hijacking political conversation by publishing these really negative stories that have no substance to them. Um, and I think that this is worse for voters because voters get misled in this negative environment. Had he done that, I think it would have been a very different outcome. And if he came back and did it all again? Um, I think if that candidate come, can't come back from that attack, can't sort of fire back, can't justify their manly tears, um, I think that it's, it's easy to be defined the same way that Muskie was defined before. So the Muskies of today are probably destined for ridicule. Our tolerance for tears hasn't expanded so far that we'd react differently to the Manchester incident. But the good news is that the Muskie rule, that there's no crying in politics, isn't true. Probably never was. If there's a lesson to be learned from Ed Muskie, it's not what we thought. It actually is okay for men to cry. It can even be an opportunity. But tears never explain themselves. They don't tell us what your thoughts are. For that, you need words. And so in politics, as well as in life, it's not tears that are truly dangerous. It's silence. Thank you so much, Jesse Rhodes, for sharing this incredible piece. If you want to hear more Manish, and I really think you should, you can subscribe in iTunes or on SoundCloud or visit the website at man-ish.weebly.com. Special thanks to the Edmund S. Muskie Archives and Special Collections Library, 
John Milne, Jim Witherall, Emily Polina, Brandon Pascal, Shoshana Walter, and Ryan Neville Shepard. To find links to Ryan's research, go to the show's website and open the page for this episode. There you can also find links to music you heard on the show. To stay connected to A Therapist Walks Into a Bar, subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts, follow on social media, and visit atherapistwalksintoabar.com to sign up for the newsletter. Jessica and I will be back with a brand new episode in about a month, so stay tuned. Stay tuned.